You're listening to the Entrepreneur's Agony Aunt podcast. Keeping it real, telling the story like it is, because there are no mistakes that somebody else hasn't already made. Hello, I'm Vicky Brock, and you're listening to the Entrepreneur Agony Aunt podcast. My guest this week is Jim Stern, founder of the eMetric Summit, now the Marketing Evolution Experience, and founder of the Digital Analytics Association. He's an internationally known speaker, author, and consultant to Fortune 500 companies, which listeners means you probably can't afford him. Fortunately, he's a dear friend of mine, and he's here to share with us some of his substantial experience in sales, marketing, and strengthening customer relationships. So thank you and welcome to the uh, Agony on Couch, Jim. Well, thank you very much. It is an honor to be here. Dear friend, indeed. 15 years seems to have just flown by. Um, and <laughs> oh, I'd my like God. A quick shout out to my American friends um, for Agony Ant, think Dear Abby. And now you understand what we're about. <laughs> so we've got two questions to tackle this week. The first one came in via Twitter, hence its unusual brevity. It is, how do you go about landing your first four sales? I could really do with some advice. Now, they don't say what business they're in, but I'm going to assume that uh, given that we tend to talk about tech, software, and B2B, they're probably in that space. Uh, the second question, oh, I really want to the answer to this one. How do I decide to price my early sales? I know that if I underprice, it will be really hard to get back from, and I'll limit my market opportunity. But I don't want to lose potential sales, and I can't imagine that my customers will pay the same for our solution as they do for IBM, even though, of course, ours is way better, <laughs> as it always is, if you ask the entrepreneur. Wow. So, Jim, perhaps you can first tell us a little bit about yourself and how you've evolved from Shakespeare major to author and entrepreneur before we dive into the questions. Yeah. So how do you make your first four sales immediately threw me back to how did I make my first four sales individually, not just as a company? Um, and so that was Shakespeare major. First jobs out of school were customer service. So my very first introduction to industry was as a customer advocate. I was the ombudsman between the customer and the company. So I was odd man out representing the customer, trying to make sure they got what they needed and, and help them understand where they got confused, et cetera, et cetera. Then my, my first sales job was in a retail store selling Apple IIe's. Yes, that was the early eighties, <laughs> And um, that was very strange because I had two types of customers. Either they came in and said, what's this then? Well, it's a computer. What's that? And I would walk them through it and they go, well, it seems expensive. And then they'd walk out and the others would come in and have a list of exactly what they wanted. And I was just an order taker, happy to collect my commission. So that was not educational whatsoever. Then I sold business computers and immediately dove headfirst into the art of consultative selling. People who did not own a business computer before were about to trust their entire company to this weird black box. And I was the one who had to explain to them that it was trustworthy and it had nothing to do with speeds and feeds and everything to do with benefits and, and risk analysis. So this customer centristic perspective that I had worked perfectly for that. Tell me about your business. What's the hard part about doing accounting and inventory control? Let me show you how this can help you and very much on the side of the customer. Now, let me switch gears here. 
if I'm an entrepreneur in a B2B environment selling against IBM, then my first sale is going to not actually be a sale. It's going to be signing up a beta tester. If you are willing to invest the time to work with me to help get my product enterprise ready, then you will have very strong hand in, in the direction that the product goes, and you will be allowed to use it as long as you are on my advisory council or my product counselor, whatever I call it. And should you want to continue using it after a year, then we're going <laughs> to talk pricing, which brings us to the second question. How do you price this stuff? The answer is pretty simple. The price that you state is actually only in your mind. Unless you're selling things online with a stated price tag, everything is, uh, and it depends. You know, the, the people are going to come to you and say, what does this cost? Well, it's a range. It's anywhere from 5000 to 50000 or it's anywhere from 20000 to 100000 depending on what bits we implement and how much consulting you need. Let's talk about what you need and how it will benefit you from a capability perspective and financially. Now, just because you gave that first customer that first price doesn't mean anybody else knows. Mm -hmm. So it is the, pri the price in your mind only. The next comes along and you say, well, it costs this much because, oh my God, we, we really need the cash. And they say, that's too much. Well, now we're just negotiating. Okay, so that's fine. And frankly, every customer is going to end up being a different price and that's just fine. You price your product so that enough people say yes, so that you have a business and enough people say no, so that you're not overwhelmed by trying to fulfill. <laughs> and when you start getting overwhelmed, you raise your prices. So what price it per se, you look at what the, your biggest competitor is selling it for and you say, uh, it's the same price, except it's twice as good. Lucky you. Or it's a little bit more than them because it's so much better. And I'll give you a discount because you're one of our first clients. And then again, we're back to just negotiating. It's really interesting then what we're talking about with this first customer, the beta customer who I've certainly took that approach. We, we worked closely with people and you're you're iterating through, you almost, I mean, I know in IBM terms, they kind of, they buy that sale. They, they probably literally buy that customer. But as a startup or as a young company, that first customer, but it's almost a huge leap of faith on both of your parts. And I think you do need to put a little bit of work in to make sure that that beta customer is the right one. Um, I've had experiences where you have somebody super innovative, super cutting edge. They're really at the bleeding edge of things and their ideas are amazing. But the rest of the mainstream is nowhere near them. If you did everything that they wanted and you shaped this thing for them, there would be an audience of one. Is that a risk? Is that a normal thing? And if so, how do you kind of mitigate that? It's definitely a normal thing and a risk. Um, uh, I have two examples. The first one uh, is a young man named John Marshall who came to a couple of eMetric summits in the early days, and he was so frustrated at trying to use web trends, a web analytics tool, that he decided he was going to make his own. And he showed it. He showed me a demo. And I said, wow, you're definitely heading in the right direction. 
and he showed it to a guy responsible for web analytics at the company Intuit. And the guy at Intuit said, well, that's okay, but I can't use it because it doesn't do this, this, and this. Well, John Marshall realized that the things that this guy was asking for were legitimate and horizontally valuable. And so he said, look, will you work with me on this? I would like to make it work for you because I can see the things you want are going to work for everybody. And there's a couple things you want I will do anyway because I want you as a customer. So the guy at Intuit worked hand in hand with John Marshall and they created the ClickTracks product kind of together. And that guy at Intuit was named Avinash Kaushik, and he went on to become the analytics evangelist for Google. He found his way into a new career because he helped create a product. The entrepreneur found a teammate in a client who was so enthused and so willing to help that they created a great product together. If you're careful about doing unique features for one client, you're okay. Let me tell you the second story. The Digital Analytics Association, we work with a association management company and they handle the accounting and they handle the back end website and all that stuff. And we found association management software package and put that in and started using it and said, Ooh, you know, this is not working. We need this, 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 and this. And they said, well, we're going to be coming out with those eventually, but if you want to pay us, we can write them specifically for you now. And essentially the main product that kept advancing, and we did a fork off to the left saying, we need these features, we want them this way. So we paid for new features to be added. Three years later, we said, well, now we need this, this, and this. And they said, yeah, those are part of our main program, but your fork, your branch is so far off, you need to now migrate back over to the main where we've got the features that you had already paid for way back when, but they're different. And it was an actual migration effort and problem. The whole thing ended up being expensive, but the Digital Analytics Association got the features we needed when we needed them. So on the one hand, the software company embraced the risk because we gave them cash to make the changes. And on the other hand, the Digital Analytics Association embraced the risk even at the expense of having to pay for those features. So if you're careful, it can work. It's not comfortable but it's, it's quite possible to do special features as long as you can get them back in the boat down the line. And I suppose the key thing there is about the value. It was valuable to you as the organization to solve the problem that you were trying to achieve. And I've, you know, I've myself got a little bit nervous and stressed about sales. And I always used to say, I'm not a salesperson. And yet I could go out there and I could sell my company, I could sell my product because I was talking to customers that interested me, it excited me. I wanted to find out about their problems and I wanted to solve them. I just didn't think for a second that was selling. Um, but of course <laughs> it is, right? Uh, certainly it's a, sort of, it's a founder type of selling. But so often I think that we talk about our features and our product and our amazing technology. In tech entrepreneurs are the worst for this. You know, I've got all of these patents, I've got all of these features, I've got all of this IP. Why isn't anybody buying it? Why don't I have product market fit? You're kind of missing the market bit, the customer bit, the what's in it for me. Is that a common thing, do you think? And how can you kind of get your mindset in the right place that you're almost stepping away from the tech and into the customer's shoes. It is wildly common. And it is why so many, so many entrepreneurs 
who start companies end up as chief technical officer or chief strategy officer rather than CEO, who's responsible for managing the whole damn thing, or head of sales or head of marketing. Because I see a problem and I figure out a solution does not mean I'm good at selling, does not mean I'm good at marketing. So the sales person is responsible for running out there and beating the bushes and finding people who might be interested, explaining the value, not the features, explaining the value of the product and getting the prospect so interested that they then want to talk to the entrepreneur. And the entrepreneur can explain all of the features while the salesman translates that into value, customer value. And this gets even worse when it comes to marketing. I learned this really early on After selling business computers, I sold software development tools. And the two brothers who founded the company did not comprehend marketing. They just, they, yes, we'll put an ad in a magazine and we'll put up a stand at a trade show, but that's it. We we won't, direct mail doesn't make any sense to us. Why bother? And it, the epiphany came to me that they were not going to learn when I said, look, We're shipping out these reel-to-reel tapes of our software in old cardboard boxes that came from your garage, and we really need to have nice, pretty, white, clean, brand-new boxes with nice labels on them to ship out. They said, that's nonsense. The only people who see our boxes are in the shipping department. It makes no difference to the the recipient. Well, actually, it does. Because the people in the shipping department get a nice clean box or they get an old crummy used box. And sometimes that box makes it into the IT department and they look at this crummy old box. Nope, it makes no difference. We're selling to engineers. They don't care what it looks like. And I said, then why is it that you drive a bright red Cadillac? And they had no answer. And I realized they were not going to get it. They did not understand branding or customer perception. Those are different talents. And so uh, my advice to entrepreneurs is if somebody ever tells you that you really should hire a salesperson, <laughs> listen to them. I've had interesting feedback at one point. Uh, I'd brought in a marketing stroke salesperson, which was a mistake because they should never be a marketing stroke salesperson. They sure as hell are one or the other, I think, um, but not embodied in the same role just because you can't afford both. And I got feedback from the client who I knew well, who we'd done the beta sale with, so then worked very closely with us. He just called me and said, that salesperson is not doing you any favors. Word of advice, you need a new one. Now, that was customer feedback I had to listen to, actually, even though I was under quite a lot of imp- pressure internally to sell more, to sell more, to sell more, and therefore get more people. Something was already going off in the message to the extent that the customer could pick it up. And I found that really invaluable feedback. But I think it's one of the things that entrepreneurs get a lot, especially a technical founder or technical entrepreneur is that in the second they raise money, they're under extraordinary pressure from their board, from their investors to be getting 20x growth month on month. So just bring in more sales guys. And, and presumably there's a hell of a lot of steps of positioning of marketing work to be done first. Is it all chicken and egg? I mean, is there a order to any of this that makes life less painful? Oh boy, I wish it were so. 
the the fact that that an entrepreneur comes up with a solution or some elegant tech does not necessarily mean there's a market for it does not necessarily mean there's a correct positioning for it and so i'd say therefore sales comes first it's up to a salesperson whether that's the entrepreneur or not to go out in the field to find the right kinds of people who have this problem or this pain explain the solution and see if there is resonance and that that's going to happen long before funding people people who are writing checks are going to demand to see that there is at least some market fit in that way that there are people who recognize they have the problem they understand the solution and they're they're interested at least they're interested marketing comes later if i have enough sales then i can afford to do marketing if i if my marketing is good then i will need to hire more salespeople but sales comes first we've got to get cash in the door and uh, that's going to be the one person the entrepreneur who's going out there and and really it's it's about being schizophrenic because building a product is excruciatingly different than selling it the positioning of it well that's that's flexible that's malleable we're going to change the position over time as the marketplace changes as the customers change as we find new market segments to go after but selling boy it is it is a talent it's hard to find good ones that you can afford as a startup the often the solution is to find young hungry enthusiastic people who are willing to go out there and beat the bushes for you and that's okay for a while but eventually you need to bring in a professional who regardless of their experience in a particular field knows how to sell it is not something you're just going to pick up by reading a book it is a skill that becomes a talent that can be mastered and that takes experience and experience costs money the entrepreneur is often well almost always doing those initial sales and it's funny that the question was about the first four sales and it's a really specific number because I nailed four sales. I, I closed our first four sales. Um, they weren't necessarily the most elegant sales processes. They weren't necessarily <laughs> the best deal. And there was yeah, you know. there was certainly all the hell that comes with the founder-led sell first and build second. Somebody in product management, actually, in my case, uh, Stephen, my husband, who, who was my head of product going, what did you sell? Please, can you just kind of give us some shape of what you sold so we can turn that into a functional spec and actually build it. Um, and so, you know, there is risk to the sell first, build later. But at, at the beginning, when you have got no money, when you've got no revenue coming in, when you have not yet validated to yourself or to others that the business even deserves to live, I think you have to yet sell first, build later. And I found the challenge came when I almost tried to professionalize the sales process and go, right, we can't do this anymore. We can't have Vicky running around randomly painting rainbows, selling rainbows, and then us trying to build rainbows. Although they were great technical rainbows, I hasten to add they were good. Like the person in the second question, really good, great. There comes a point where you need the experienced salesperson because you can't do everything and you're not doing sales very efficiently. But the product is not necessarily of the quality that perhaps an experienced 
enterprise salesperson is used to having, as in it isn't finished. How, how as a salesperson do you handle that? And how, when you're looking for the right person to bring into your company, do you take into account the fact that the tech is still iterating through? Frankly, that that is the nature of sales. If if, uh, if you have a if you are interviewing somebody for a sales position, and they give you the feeling that they are uncomfortable selling intangibles, you are interviewing the wrong person. When I was selling business computers, um, we had a very standard problem, and you know, again, this is the 1980s, so this was all new stuff. It was before personal computers, so. The smallest item you could buy from me was $35,000, and that was not a lot of software coming with it. We had standard packages. It is accounts receivable, accounts payable, payroll, general ledger. And inventory was a whole nother story because everybody did it different. Well, even those standard accounting packages needed modifications. So the, the genius behind the sales training was the compensation. I would receive as a salesperson 10% a commission on the hardware and 10% commission on the software and 25% commission on software modifications. So my job was to go in and find out what the company, how they ran and what they did for a living and how they felt about their accounting to explain what the standard packages did at the set standard no discount price and then start talking about how it would need to be modified for them. And I was wildly motivated to make sure that we modified the software because that allowed me to buy a house in Santa Barbara. <laughs> I saw systems that were all customized for the people who were receiving them and they all understood the difference between here's the flat package, you can buy it out of the box, it will do 90% of the job, but to really help you run your business, you need to add on these features. And we would sit down with the software people and discuss with the company what needed to be changed, what had to be added on in order to make it really work for them. The software people would go off in a corner and figure out how many hours it would take, my management would tell me how much that would cost, but I could price it any way I wanted to because I was going to get 25% commission. If they said it was going to cost $1,000 and I sold it for $2,000, I just doubled my commission. The company made higher margins. If I was able to convince the client it was worth it, everybody was happy. So that concept of here's what the standard package does, here's what it, here are the modifications we need to make it to work for you and jiggering the compensation for the salesperson, that, that actually worked out really well. You know, I think uh, it's something that we're appallingly bad at in Scotland, in the UK. You know, we're great at inventing. We're great at creating tech. We're, we're innovators and inventors, and we are terrible, terrible salespeople. You were saying that. It made me kind of realize why. It's like, well, please do not think about compensation packages in that way we think of our salaries and you know maybe you'll be on a day rate and maybe there'll be a little bit of commission here and there but I really don't recall having sat down had a 
deep, intelligent conversation with fellow entrepreneurs about how do you compensate your salespeople in the way that I've had long, deep, involved conversations about how do you get product market fit? How, mm. how do you manage remote workers? All of this kind of thing. Is this just the, you know, am I just the wrong side of the pond? Or is it a real kind of weakness or knowledge gap where entrepreneurs are just not really understanding how salespeople take and how to motivate them? I'm I'm absolutely not going to step into the cultural difference conversation, except to say that the United States, rightly or wrongly, was was founded on as as a commerce entity. We are we you know we have the best government money can buy. We <laughs> and it shows. Um, we have. Uh, you know, go see the the Glen Gary Glen Ross again. The, the I have the, not seen that since I was at university, which was in the early nineties. Because it will give you some insight into the American mindset. Um, you know, if you if you hire a salesperson to sell a complex product into a B two B environment, they are going to be a drain on your budget for three months. They are not going to find anything. They don't know where to look. They don't know how to describe your product. They are brand new and you're just throwing them out into the wilderness and hoping they can survive. So you expect nothing from them for three months. And then it's time to have the come to Jesus meeting where you say, well, you know, what are the numbers? How many calls are you making? How many meetings have you had? Show me your pipeline. When do you think these people are actually going to close? And if they don't have anything, they're gone. Three months, gone, goodbye, thank you so much, probationary period, over. If they then say, oh, no, I actually have things that are going to close next month, then there is a pre-agreed compensation package that says, we're going to give you full salary for three months, and then you're going to go on to three-quarter salary, but you'll make it up with commissions. And two months later, it's half salary, but you're going to make it up in commissions. And by the end of the year... You're on commission only. And if you can't pay your rent and feed yourself being commission only, I guess you shouldn't be here. You're not a salesperson. Well, that's uh, <laughs> that's just so alien to me and, and I expect to a lot of people. And yet the single biggest problem every single founder I speak to has is about sales. And I wonder if mm-hmm. we have a lack of confidence in ourselves as young companies, as at the back of our minds, there may be this doubt, does anybody even want this? There's really risk in putting yourself, your company, your product, your baby out there and it being rejected after you've put time and invested money into it. So there's almost perhaps this reticence underneath being grown up about the selling process until your investors are giving you very little choice. It's definitely an area where I, perhaps this needs to be added to uh, the marketing evolution experience, uh, the sales evolution experience. It's just a whole swathe of area where I think there's a knowledge gap that I don't see where it's being filled from. I mean, how did you learn all this stuff? Was it literally doing it? Or is there some magical sales camp somewhere uh, on the West Coast near Santa Barbara that, that you got sent off to? <laughs> there there was. It, it was a sales manager named Rick Rickling. He, he was my magical camp. He would, uh, he had, the office was 
50 miles away. And he would come up to Santa Barbara once a month and he would say, don't waste my time. So I would spend all month setting up the day. And the day was telling people, you know, we've had a number of conversations, but next Thursday, my sales manager is going to be in town and it's a great opportunity because he knows so much more than I do. Can we please schedule a half an hour meeting? And my job every month was to make sure that at the end of the day, he saw as many people as possible so that I impressed him that I knew how to make appointments. But also because he was really good at his job and he would come in and I would just set things up and I would watch him sell. And it was amazing. He was brilliant. Somebody would come up with some flat objection saying, we can't buy this because of X. And he would come up with the perfect response to that that would make them go, oh, well, I hadn't thought about that. And, and I didn't know you, you were allowed to tell people things like, or ask people things like, so I understand your objection. And if we were to overcome that objection by doing this, this, and this, would that then make it possible for you to write us a purchase order? Really? You can say that to people? And, you know, I did that for, for five years, I learned. And then in the software development tool industry, I went out nationally and sold to very large companies and the government and used those same techniques of why is it that you're really not wanting to buy this now? Can I explain how there's a different perspective? And no, I'm, I'm afraid there's, there's, you know, I, I read 50 books. I talked, I went to sales training. I was in the industry for, I was in sales for 15 years and I loved it because the amount of money I made did not depend on whether my boss's boss's boss liked me or not. It depended on how hard I worked. And I think I became successful because I learned how to do it in a small town, Santa Barbara, 80,000 people. There were only several hundred companies here to sell to. And the people I sold their first business computer to 40 years ago are still willing to talk to me and say hello on the street because I made sure that the product worked for them. I, I was a customer-centric consultative salesperson. I wish I had an easy answer. I think the, the real issue is, as an entrepreneur, I see a problem. I understand there can be a solution. I work my butt off making that solution work. And then I explain how excited I am to people and some people buy it, but I don't really know how I sold it. I just got, I just found the right people to explain it to. And now I hire a salesperson to do a job I don't understand, but is so packed with emotion because if they can't sell this product, I'm a failure for having built the wrong product. No, a salesperson can sell anything to anybody. And if you're lucky to find one of those people, you don't have to like them. You don't have to trust them. You don't have to want to have a beer with them. You just have to pay them commission. It's fascinating because as you've explained that, I just kind of almost had this moment of realization. It's like you don't hire a CTO who hasn't done 10 years of coding and built products and released products. You don't hire a CFO who knows nothing about accounting and yet, you know, the most important job really for the entire commercial success of your company is selling and you don't go out there and invest in an appropriate 
experienced, highly salaried person because that's not what startups do. That's what big, grown-up, expensive companies do. That seems like a massive mistake that I think listeners and myself need to fix in another business. When you talk to people who were vice president of sales at large corporations, they will tell you their most successful salespeople were the most trouble. They were the most combative. They were the most belligerent. They were the least respectful. They, but they brought in more sales than anybody else. They did it because they were dogged. They were trouble because a really good salesperson has one thing in mind, and that's commission. Now, I can earn my commission by selling this product to that customer, or I can sell my entrepreneur on a different product because the customer wants to buy it. And I don't care. Whoever I can convince the easiest is the shortest path to commission. I'm going to make that happen. So you don't have to, you know, the, the, the ideal salesperson is somebody who comes in and absolutely convinces you that they can do the job. No question. They are absolutely perfect for the job. You feel it in your heart because they just sold you themselves. And then if all goes well, it happens that they have sold similar products in a similar industry. They already have a database full of the kinds of people who might buy your product because they sold in a similar industry or they sold to the same industry, but different products. So they have these contacts in industry already, that is worth a lot of money. And unfortunately, yes, good, really good salespeople are really expensive and they produce absolutely nothing for months and months and months because that's the nature of business to business complex sales. And it's really hard because they're also, they interview like a dream. Yeah. I hate interviewing salespeople because all of my usual techniques for interviewing just fail miserably um, and I, I every salesperson I've hired it's literally been you know you sold me the job and now I literally have to sit here for the next three months and see if you scammed me or not because yes. I'm not going to find out yeah, if, absolutely. If, if, you, if you were bullshitting or not until we get to this point where I could realistically start to expect to see some progress yeah fascinating so a lot of the listeners to the podcast uh, run service businesses. So although we've been talking about tech, there's plenty of people running agencies and consultancies. Um, and I know you've got a lot of experience in that area. One of the things that I hear time and time again is where there's a lot of pressure to give your time away, to do this thing for free, to speak at this thing for free, uh, to build awareness or to build your reputation. But how does somebody perhaps who doesn't quite have uh, the the brand that you do handle those kind of freebie questions? Two ways. One is referrals, it, you know, testimonials with, gee, I did the same sort of thing for this other company and they really liked it. You should probably call that person and talk to her and see how we got along and how I could help them. The other one is the, the introductory price. The, this is one I learned very early on. I was part of one, uh, a startup which was an internet access provider back in the day. This is, you know, the, the, the very early 1990s. And uh, we would, chief technical officer, the business officer, and me at sales and marketing, would go to a company and say, here's why you should be on the internet. 
let me explain what the internet is. And if they were technical, we would have to talk about packet switching. But if not, we would have to talk about everything that's available and the ability to do marketing online. And this was a foreign concept. But we were very enthused about it. They would always be enthused and we would spend easily half a day. You know, We'll come in for an hour meeting and it would go on for three hours because there was so much to talk about, all the possibilities of what the internet could be. And we'd walk out and they'd say, yeah, well, we'll think about it. And they wouldn't buy. And I said, well, that was a complete waste of time. So people would say, yeah, we would like you to come in and talk to us. We'd like to have an hour long meeting to have you come in and talk to us about what this internet is and, and why we should get on the internet. And I would reply, that's great. We will do a two hour workshop. It's $500. And they'd say, oh no, we, yeah, no, we're not interested. Okay, fine. Thanks. Bye. But if they said, yeah, well that, that's okay. We, we, we mm-hmm. want to bring in 20 people. I said, that's great. We will spend two hours. We'd always spend a half a day and it would end because they were willing to spend a small amount of money to learn about why they should spend a large amount of money. We knew they were serious. Yeah. You were qualifying them in on multiple levels. <laughs> so Jim, thank you so much for your time, but I'm afraid before I let you escape, I, I really want to ask on behalf of all the entrepreneurs and founders who find themselves as head of sales with zero qualifications and having to make all this up as we go along. Uh, is there any pearls of wisdom that you can uh, give us as, uh, as, as we go on our weary way? Yeah, there is. Um, there is a book and I, it's been so long, I might not even get the title right. I think it's How the Best Gets Better. Very short book and yet very expensive. <laughs> so let me just give you the gist of it for free. An entrepreneur is a problem solver in their DNA. And when they build the product, they're solving a bunch of problems. When they're building a company, they solve a bunch of problems. When they go out and sell and do marketing, it's like, I'm it turns out I am capable. I can do this stuff. I am smart enough to figure it out. So now it's time to figure out accounting. I can do that. Now it's time to figure out sales. I can do that. You should not do that. You are brilliant at coming up with a solution to a problem in a specific industry. That is your forte. That is, you are a product person, perhaps. And if that's the case, Find somebody else who is a business person first and foremost. They are absolutely brilliant at business and contracts and lawyers and operations. God bless them. And then over here, somebody who is absolutely brilliant at sales and marketing or one of the other. Instead of trying to solve the problem of marketing, find somebody who's absolutely brilliant at it, doesn't want to build products, doesn't want to build company. They want to play with positioning and messaging and and creating buzz and and creating communications with the industry. That's their their glory. That's what they love to do. Find that person and let them do it to the best of their ability, which frees you up to make better product. Rather than being the person who's responsible for everything, don't spend more time on the things you're not good at because you need to learn them. Spend less time on the things you're not good at and have somebody else do it so you can get even better at the thing you're really good at. Funny how it always comes back to focus. Yeah. And it's a really hard lesson for us all to learn. We have to do a hell of a lot less to be more successful at it. 
so thank you, Jim. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. You've been listening to Vicky Brock and Jim Stern, this week's Entrepreneur Agony Aunts. As ever, you can submit your question at vickybrock.com slash podcast.